The Start. On Demand. demand. Good morning, Loren McNabb. Pre-Friday. Thursday morning. I like it. I have, as I have said, you know how it goes and I don't want to, I start vacation as of whatever time tomorrow. And so every day has felt like it should be Wednesday or Thursday this week. It it feels slow when you're looking to go, you know? Uh, And you're a poet. You didn't even know it. 9.57 tomorrow morning. (laughs) <laughs> You'll be <laughs> on your way you know for what? a couple of weeks. I think I'll just skip out that whole segment with Courier. I'll just let's make it nine forty-seven. How's that sound? Nine forty-seven. I'd be happy to give you an extra ten minutes. I don't have a lot of power around here, but if I can give you ten extra minutes of vacation, I'd be happy to do so, Loren. Yesterday was no vacation, no walk in the park. Plenty of stories breaking in the city of Winnipeg. Lots of news yesterday, and uh, today we'll be trying to look back and look forward at the same time to to see what happens in particular. Our top story today, Portage Place. What is the fate of that uh, monolith in the heart of downtown Winnipeg? Well, that's because we were sharing with our listeners all day yesterday the idea that the developers had put in an ask to the three levels of government for t- around $20 million each. And then they learned that the city or at least the mayor's inner circle wasn't willing to vote on that 20 million. They were only looking to invest 5 million. And so now City Hall is going to vote on this investment scheme, if you'd call it, next week. And it's not clear what the developers are going to do with that. If they don't get that total amount, that total 60 million, 2020 from each level, or if the other levels of government have to kick in more, what will happen with this project? And I think there are many questions about this for anyone who goes downtown or works downtown or lives downtown. You either go downtown and you drive past that Portage Place every day and you think to yourself, who's even going in there anymore? What kind of business is happening there? And what are we going to do with that? You might be a member of Winnipeg's more vulnerable community that wants to have that space there that you have a place to access in the cold winter months and the community center that's supposed to be part of this new Starlight Development, downtown development, Greg. And you might just be someone who said, oh, this was so cool that someone was coming into our city to spend $400 million. Are we going to lose that opportunity if you don't find a way as government to come up with the cash. And then there might be someone who just says, don't give them the money. They're sick of mm-hmm. public investment, right? Right. And, uh, you know, I'll I'll take this to my grave, I believe. In, in Winnipeg, there are some people who view downtown Winnipeg as downtown Regina or downtown Saskatoon. It's that disjointed from where they live and where they spend their time. And we need to fix that. We need to change that. It is the downtown of our city, of our metropolitan area, of our province. It is the heart. It is the center. Center uh, economically, in terms of uh, entertainment and business, it all happens downtown, but there's something missing. We've been trying to fix it for going on 40 years now. Portage Place was supposed to be the linchpin, the, the future of downtown. It hasn't worked out that way, but I think we can look to several other projects that have been the, the pieces of the puzzle, so to speak, and I think this would be one more. We'll delve into that a little bit more deeply in just a few minutes' time. Uh, Portage Place, and we'll hear from Starlight, the developers from Toronto, what they their perception is and and where they see things going from here. And at seven o'clock, we'll hear from just after seven o'clock news. Actually, Scott Gillingham, city councilor, member of EPC, will join us. And at seven forty-five, sort of dovetails into this whole conversation about downtown Winnipeg and the larger community. Whether you're outside the perimeter highway or inside the future of Winnipeg, our Winnipeg. It's a document that's being created. It's a it's a framework for future development and what our city looks like. It's called our Winnipeg 2045. We were talking about this earlier this week because it's a, a easily a 100-page document with all sorts of different uh, titles on transit, on transparency in government, on where they should be growing, on what they should do with certain pieces of land, what would Winnipeggers like to see in different areas, what's missing from your from your community. And so there, it's a really big document that they're looking for public input on. And we'd like them to help us share what they're looking for from the public in the sense of what can I contribute to the overall vision for Winnipeg. And you know, Greg, on that note, we're talking a lot about development in Winnipeg today. You mentioned the downtown and this huge Portage Place development con. Uh, complex. We, we talk about just overall growth in our city and, and how we'd like it to look 25 years from now. And with that conversation, we're going to circle back to the issue of impact fees today. It appears the city is not going to appeal that decision that basically called this impact fee, this growth fee, an indirect invalid tax. And now there are questions about there's $32 million sitting in a reserve account 
When does that money go back to the builders? And then does it ever get back to the homeowners? So lots of development talk today. No question. And uh, development, a lot of people see development as infringing on nature. We have the story about the coyotes in Assiniboine Forest. And as we get out, we enjoy Manitoba more. I know when I lived in Alberta, cougar attacks were a common thing, believe it or not, uh, in Kananaskis country, in Banff. And, well, we had in our national park here uh, an interaction, human-bear interaction. Yeah, a a full close encounter with a bear that resulted in the bear, you can call it a swatting at the runner, slapping the runner, scratching the runner, and then sort of looking at one another and taking off. But at 6.37, we're going to show you more from the story of Erin McKenzie and and her run-in at Riding Mountain National Park with a bear. And then I would like to ask listeners, What's your closest encounter with wildlife? And do you honestly have, you know, the same way we talk about in storm season, like if you saw funnel clouds developing, what's your plan to save yourself from tornado? Well, a lot of us are hiking and camping and biking and doing all sorts of things this summer, staying in our backyard. That means we're going to have more possible encounters with wildlife. Do you have a plan if you come around the corner, Greg, and there's Mm. a bear standing there? Uh, I do not, but I do have a bear story, an almost bear interaction story (laughs) to add to the discussion. We are celebrating Manitoba. Yesterday, Manitoba 150, our acceptance into Confederation. And uh, right off the bat, Loren, I'm breaking the rules. Are you there, McNabb? Yeah, I'm just letting this go. This is the age of electric. They are one of my favorite bands of all time. One problem. They're not from Manitoba. (laughs) They're from Saskatchewan. Oh, come on, man. What? (laughs) Yes. And so you can imagine my despair growing up. My favorite bands growing up, Canadian-wise, were Harlequin, Guess Who, Streetheart, Queen City Kids, Kickaxe, and The Age of Electric. Well, Streetheart, QCK, Kickaxe, and uh, The Age of Electric, all from Saskatchewan. Originally, So imagine my horror when I found that out. But I'm playing this song because that video was made at the Hotel Fort Gary uh, for Ugly, for Age of Electric. So that's why I'm playing that this morning. Kelly Moore, no Jeff Braun today. Jeff Forche is here. Loren McNabb, we're talking about our favorite Manitoba music. And we're accepting your text messages at 780-6868. Loren McNabb, are you a fan of uh, Age of Electric? Mm, I don't know. I, I wouldn't say I'm a fan. I like them. You know, it, it's funny that you say this because when I went looking and listed some of my favorite Manitoba bands this morning, I was surprised how many uh, were partially Manitoban. And, and it makes me laugh about what we consider to own, right? If one member of the band is from Manitoba, does that count? Do they all have to be from here? Do they have to have lived here for a certain length of time like what do you really consider to be manitoban but i'm gonna play my pick right now because i feel this is the boneyard tree by the watchman uh high school they were a huge band back in the mid 90s late 90s early 2000s and as far as i'm concerned i think they're all from winnipeg so this is a fully manitoba band great cruising the streets of minnedosa with this one and the cassette player and uh fully enjoy them yeah, the Watchmen are are terrific. We've had uh, we've had Danny uh, Graves on the on the program before. Big big Winnipeg fan. His hotel is bar uh, the hotel I think it's called in Toronto is the unofficial headquarters for Winnipeg Jets fans in Toronto. Kelly Moore, we know that you didn't grow up here, but uh, you are a Manitoban through and through. Absolutely, and there is 100% no doubt who my favorite Manitoba musicians are. Chris Thorstenson, Dave Wasselow, and an assortment of different guys who have been all part of Doc Walker over the many, many years, 26, 27, maybe 28 years now. But, uh, oh, yeah, those guys, uh, I absolutely love them, and I will go anywhere 
to see them. Yeah, saw them in a concert in a small venue earlier. Oh, I guess it was, yeah, earlier this year. I, I don't know, it might have been 2018 for all I can remember. No, it was uh, just a few months ago, and uh, they are incredible live. Great pull, Kelly Moore. Jeff Forche, you have the honors of the final choice. Well, I'm going to have to pick uh, no childhood uh, favorite. I hear the music every minute <laughs> of the day. I can hear it all around me. Well done. Music. It's got to be Fred Penner. Oh, yes, it does. It all around me. Actually, this was uh, in studio with uh, Mackling McGarry in the afternoon. That's right. We've had the great fortune of getting to meet Mr. Penner several times over the last several years. Yeah, fantastic pull. Your favorites at 204-780-6868. John Anderson will join us uh, later on this morning. He'll talk a little bit about Manitoba's music history. It's an incredible story, what we've managed to do with our population. We punch way above our weight class in terms of music. Uh, I don't care what anybody says. We are the capital of rock and roll, although Regina might want to push back a little bit on that. 6.56, coming up to 6.57. We missed Jeff Braun in our Having Coffee Talking segment, but he's standing by with Global News at 7 o'clock and then City Councilor Scott Gillingham will join us to tell us where are things with Portage Place? Is the deal dead? We hope it's not. We'll find out in just a few moments. It is the start. I'm Mackling, along with Loren McNabb. Brett McGarry is back next Monday. Maybe hot and sunny or a gentle rain is tap, tap, tapping on my window pane. Because the world is turning, I can feel... We've been talking this morning, Greg, about Winnipeg, Manitoba bands, Weaker Thens, one of the great ones. And this song, sadly, I think is fitting with where we're going next, because what is the chorus to this song, Greg? I hate Winnipeg, and sometimes it feels like we all hate it collectively. We love it and hate it. It's a... It's an interesting relationship we have with ourselves, with our city, and we're asking the question to start this hour, is the deal to redevelop Portage Place dead even before a shovel has gone into the ground? You've got a partner here uh, that believes in this project, that believes in the city, that wants to make change. This is a true transformational project and one that I think will, uh, will go the distance. So as long as we're all working together on this one, which I'm hoping is going to happen following uh, today's meeting, uh, we, we hope to get there. But are we all working together on this one, Greg? Starlight Development, that was Joshua Kaufman from Starlight Development. It, of course, we know, wants to spend $400 million to revamp Portage Place, but to make that happen, it was asking for some taxpayer dollars, about $60 million, $20 million of which it hoped would come from the city. That's not likely to happen. The mayor's inner circle passed a motion that would see Winnipeg invest just $5 million into the project. Full council is going to vote on that later this month. But in the meantime, if the other levels of government don't make up the shortfall, will developers walk away from this project altogether? Scott Gillingham is chair of the Finance Committee, and I believe we have him on the phone now. Good morning, Scott. Good morning. So we know the mayor has said yesterday this report to City Hall showed that the return on investment, if we put $20 million in, isn't the same as the other levels of government. And so in theory, the other levels of government should pony up more cash. But are you, a, as a member of City Hall, willing to walk away from this deal if we don't come up with our share? Well, I think it's important to say that I, I want to see this project succeed. I think the Executive Policy Committee wants to see this project succeed. Uh, council should not let this opportunity pass by. But you're right, it's about you know finding the city finding the right level of contribution and support for the project that can on one hand secure the project secure the development while we make sure we're making you know good being good stewards of taxpayers money so yeah you know we we want to work with i certainly want to work with um the the starlight and uh and get more information we received the the report very late uh in in the day and and really just the day before uh, we had our executive policy committee meeting. We 
decided to move this uh, along so that between you know, yesterday and council meeting next week, we have time to get more information to make sure we get, we're making the right contribution. Councillor, you know, I think it's frustrating for a lot of taxpayers that it f- seems as though this comes in as a private development, a private developer from elsewhere seeing the promise, the future of Winnipeg and being willing to invest. And then on the flip side going, oh, but of course they need public contribution to make that happen. Why is that a, an eventuality, it seems, in every single quote-unquote private deal? Uh, I don't know if it's just in Winnipeg or, or if it's something that happens right across North America. Well, it does happen right across North America. Cities have different uh, ways to incentivize growth. Um, the, the start of re, uh, redeveloping the city's downtown happened several years ago under, under previous mayors and, and, and councils, and it's a good thing that it, that it did. We look at all the significant investment that has happened you know, in the downtown, whether it's Sky City, True North, uh, some of the other developments that have happened, and uh, those have received uh, city incentives most often through tax increment financing. We want to see our, our, our downtown redeveloped. This could be a very important project. Uh, to enhance and transform a very underperforming piece of property in, in the, the city's core area of downtown. In many ways, everyone's saying the same thing. This is going to be a significant project. The mayor said yesterday it's transformative. You've used the words yourself the, the same, Scott. And, and so the question is, if it's so significant, if the potential is so transformative, how did we get here that we're sort of a week away from a council vote? You've got the developers saying they might walk away if they don't get this cash. And we're trying to figure out where the money is going to come from. In seven days, will we honestly have those answers? Um, well, we, we, we're going to certainly continue to work very hard to have those answers. I've, I've already asked, uh, for example, uh, you know, our, our city staff to mm-hmm. provide council with the value of um, other services to the development. For example, we could, uh, the, the city could expedite um, the, the plan approvals and the permit approvals and inspections for the project. Time is money. There's, there's a dollar value for the developer to those enhanced services. And that may be a way that the city can also contribute to this project. Uh, we, we need to know what the value is of, 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 of those expedited services as one example of another way that the city could participate. So we're working very hard. I'll be working very hard to find, um, you know, the answers to the questions so that we can do all we can to uh, to see this project realized. I was a teenager when the Portage Place opened originally, Scott, but I followed it as a as a young person, the idea of redeveloping downtown and all of the public money that was involved from the three levels of government. That was an entirely public project. Uh, there was very little pr- private money involved in that. And then over the years, we've seen in Winnipeg this idea of all public money in projects to where it's a majority of private money. This is something that we've wanted for an awfully long time, and it feels as though we're on the precipice of attracting some major money from other communities, people realizing that Winnipeg is a great place to invest, but we're also running the risk of, of turning them off massively if you look at Portage Place and the way we've treated this uh, potential Polo Park development. Um, well, <laughs> You know, you know my record on the Polar Park development. I'll I'll just leave it there. You know, I've consistently been supportive of um, of seeing multifamily development uh, allowed there. Um, I think one of the things that we have to keep in mind too, City Hall, the way City Hall operates is different than the way uh, the federal and provincial governments operate. We do everything very publicly, so we you you public will see our reports. Uh, you know, on on this Starlight project come before you, and um, you, you don't see the same level of um, of, uh, of public discussion at the provincial or federal governments. We're waiting to find out right now if the what the federal government's response will be to the, their twenty million dollar request from Starlight. You, that that will come an announcement. You'll, you'll never see that in a public process at a public you know meeting where people can come and speak to it and, and the media will attend. It's just it's just an announcement. So I think when we see uh, we have to keep that in mind when we see the process at City Hall very public. Um, then then uh, sometimes people you, you know perhaps get a little concerned when uh, you see a number of requests for twenty million dollars and and uh, the city's looking right now at five. And I think it's important to understand that. We, we agreed to the $5 million value of, of a grant uh, to move this along, at least I did, to move it along so we have time between uh, yesterday 
at next week's council meeting to determine if five million is the right amount or if something more than five million should should ultimately be the number that the city contributes. Scott Gillingham, we always appreciate uh, your input on this. Please uh, keep us updated as uh, things move along here. You've got a short amount of time to get a lot of work done. We're working hard. Thank okay. you. Godspeed. Scott Gillingham, member of EPC, chairman of the Finance Committee at City Hall. Uh, it sounds like Scott wants to get this done one way or another, Loren. Yeah, and you know, there, it, it, do we have enough time is the question. Is Starlight really going to walk away if we don't have all those answers in the week time? And, and is there room to hit pause to find a a way to come up with this cash shortfall. I don't think there's anyone who doesn't want to see this development happen, given not just the struggle in downtown, Greg, but in times of COVID, when someone's still willing to come in here and spend that amount of cash, you have to ask yourself, what's the significance of that? And do we really want to lose that investment? Mackling and McNabb with you. And Loren, all sorts of conversation this morning about the development downtown at Portage Place in particular. I've got a lengthy text message here from Calvin, and uh, uh, I just want to read some of it because I think it highlights some people's concerns about about what's going on at City Hall right now and their ability or, or lack thereof sometimes, it seems, to make a decision about satellites investment. I don't trust the city's ability to find the money in a reasonable timeline like one week is all we have to do is look back at the last few years they forgot about a timeline on a 30 million dollar lawsuit and essentially burnt all the money and just uh, a sidebar that had to do with the uh, water treatment uh, Mm -hmm. plant right it took them over five years to decide whether or not a private donation of one million dollars should be accepted to make school zones safer Let's remember that should be the city's responsibility. They have still to release any kind of reports of making sure the city workers are actually working after a private investigation, which was, once again, sidebar, funded by Mm -hmm. private individuals, discovered that 16 employees were working an average three hours per day. They're still in contempt twice, very close to three times of court over the Parker Wetlands Project. So when they say they need an extra week, let's wait and see probably two or three years from now we will get a response. And uh, Calvin went on to make uh, some other tremendous points as well. So thanks for your feedback. Very well thought out feedback. Uh, Whether I agree or disagree with you, uh, we want to hear from you at 780-6868. And one of the other stories uh, that we've been talking about since you joined this program and even before, Loren, is uh, drugs on the streets of Winnipeg. And addictions in a time of COVID. And we know we've been talking over the past few months, Greg, about the changing landscape of the, of the drug scene in our Winnipeg. And, and it was meth was such a big part of the equation. And then we've been hearing how fentanyl has rolled back into the mix. We know there are all sorts of concerns, uh, from everyone in the suburbs to downtown about addictions potentially being on the rise, just as people try to get themselves through this crisis. And we're going to try to bring on Marion Wills. Uh, Willis. She's with St. Boniface Street Links. She works with many addicts, uh, people struggling with addictions. And she just shared a story with me over text about how she was out for a nice walk through St. Boniface last night uh, uh, along the river and believe she spotted what was three people smoking fentanyl uh, at the side of the riverbanks. And so the changing landscape of what she's seen in terms of drug use has her really concerned. Prices are changing. And look, we can sit here and pretend, oh, that's not going to be me. I'm not going to be the one that goes down the road. Wrong. We know that's not the case, that the drug use touches all corners of our society. And so we're going to be chatting about addictions and the drug scene in Winnipeg throughout the day here on CJOB. I just got my uh, hand slapped digitally, Loren. Uh-oh. I called Harlequin Transcona's own. Now, my mom grew up with uh, tr- uh, with Harlequin back in the day. She grew up in Transcona. Our listener, Kevin, saying, Craig, George <laughs> Bellinger, or Belanger, as we used to call him, uh, Fort Rouge boy. So, oh. hey, I apologize for that. Uh, as I was growing up, it was they, they, Harlequin. They're from Transcona. I love when I get <laughs> set straight. 740 on the Thursday morning. That means this.
Yes, it's a small town salute brought to you by South Beach Casino and Resort, just 30 minutes north on Highway 59. Visit southbeachcasino.ca for updates in these COVID times. And Loren, during this segment, we typically take a virtual trip to a community outside the Perimeter Highway. Yesterday, we went all over the province celebrating and recognizing the roadside attractions, mascots, the big things in rural Manitoba. So today, we're going to take a musical journey to as many as four Manitoba towns. And again, pay close attention because we want to know if you can identify the three artists in this montage of Manitoba music and their respective hometowns. Now, caveat, one of these artists wasn't born in Canada, but they lived in one town as a young child and then moved to another larger small town. Got it? Phone lines will open as the third artist sings their first note. Okay, so by the way, we are playing for a four-pack of passes to the Manitoba Museum. We're sort of combining two segments today, Small Town Salute and our giveaway. So uh, get your pens and pens and paper ready, or just get your uh, notes application open on your iPhone. Uh, here we go. We've got three songs, four up to four hometowns, and the name of the artist. Here we go. Feet are on the ground, I swear But I'm not moving anywhere My lungs say that I'm breathing But when did my heart stop beating? I don't know who I am Or who I used to be before You broke me in a thousand pieces Now tell me how am I to fix that? Don't you try Lines are open now, 780-6868. I'm on my feet, Greg. Well, I knew I couldn't sing that other song by him. Did we make this too hard? No, 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 no. People can do this. Is no one calling in? We've got Come one on. caller right now, well, brave enough cool. to take on this challenge. And I suspect it might be enough because yesterday Vince blew us out of the water with his knowledge of, uh, was it Alpine? What was his name? Alpine Archie up in McCreary. And That's I, right. I was blown away because I, I didn't think anybody would get that unless they were from McCreary. Michael, you are a brave soul. How are you this morning? Hello. Hello, Michael. You're a brave soul. You're our first caller. Are you ready to uh, tackle this? Hello. Hello. Can you? Michael's hear me listening now? to the radio. Yeah, Michael. We're, you, we're in a four point five second delay. Michael, you got to turn down your radio, or I'm going to have to hang uh, up. I, I turned it off. It should be good to go. Okay, let's go. What? Who have you got? Uh, thinking like a sunset. Yeah, but I, I need to I need to know who the artist is and what small town they're from. Uh, Johnson Crook, Minnedosa. Yeah. My heart's grave, Fusia. Yeah, or Fausia, if you'd like. From. Uh, that one I don't know. Oh boy, okay, I'm gonna put you on hold here. Okay, I'm gonna put you on hold. And uh, we've got another caller here who's uh, feeling brave this morning. This is a this is a big ask. This is a big ask, and I and I apologize for that. But you know what? 
We're trying to kill two birds with one stone, if I'm allowed to say that. Rob, what have you got? That's Tom Cochran, and he's from Lynn Lake, Manitoba. You're the man. What else? we got two other artists there. Oh, I missed that. Oh, shoot. Okay, I'm going to put you back (laughs) on hold. All right. Uh, We're getting closer, I think, right? Loren? If people are listening, I think we've got, we've had all, at least three of them named. Named, but I don't know if we have the hometowns. Tannis, you're going to knock this out of the park. I know you are. I hope so. Okay, go. I think we're looking for the hometown of Carmen. That's right. So Fauja from... Carmen? Yes. Uh, Minidosa Band? Yeah. And Lynn Lake. Lynn Lake. Tom Cochran. And uh, what's the name of the band from Minidosa? Oh, oh, dang it. Um, um, you said it out loud. We did. You did. <laughs> Continue to send us your favorite Manitoba musicians, 204-780-6868. Don and my dad agree. McLean and McLean. It's a problem with McLean and McLean, Loren, and that's that we can't really play any of their music. N- nothing with lyrics anyway on the air. It's not oh. super clean stuff. A little too many bleeps would be needed. Yeah, I think it would just be a constant string of bleeps, <laughs> potentially. <laughs> That's Loren McNabb. I'm Greg Mackling with you on this Wednesday. No, Thursday morning, pre-Friday. It's Friday Eve, as we call it around here at 680 CJOB. Thanks for spending some time with us on the start. We start this hour talking about wildlife. Our interactions with wildlife seem to be on the increase, Loren McNabb. Yeah, we talked earlier this week about coyote settings being up and the fact that the city had to shut down a part of the Assiniboine Forest due to what they were calling a predatory behavior exhibited by some coyotes in that park. Manitoba Conservation has also warned this month the bear settings are up. And at 6.37 and really throughout the newscast with Jeff Braun, we've been playing you that audio of the woman who was in Riding Mountain National Park, went for a run around Moon Lake and came face to face with a bear. She startled it. It startled her. It essentially slapped or clawed her across her face, left her with a deep gash along her nose, a scratch on her back. And then he took off or she took off. The bear did. And it had us asking about wildlife encounters in this province. Are they up, Greg? And what are we supposed to do if we come in contact with uh, something that could potentially be really dangerous? And so to help us out with this conversation, we're joined by Janine Wilmot, wildlife conflict biologist with Manitoba Conservation. Good morning, Janine. Good morning. Well, let's just start with bear sightings. Uh, A lot of people reporting that they're seeing way more of them this year. What's going on? Well, we think uh, a large part of that has been the delayed spring in some areas of the province. So um, because it was a later spring, greed up took longer to occur. And so that um, those new vegetative food sources weren't available to bears. And when their natural food sources aren't available, they tend to go looking for other alternative food sources. And sometimes they're unfortunately finding those in people's backyards. So uh, things like unsecured garbage or bird feeders that haven't been been put away for the season, um, those types of things. So Janine, I had a very near interaction with a a family of bears about 25 years ago. I was in BC walking down a train line. Long story short, there was a sign warning me of the bears. And for whatever reason, I felt, I I could think I was just naive enough to ignore it. Uh, What is the biggest concern about bears? Because one of the things that I have heard is that concern, especially if it's a mother bear, breaking that scent between mother bear and cubs can cause you a real problem. Yes, so um, mother bears can be uh, protected of their cubs. Um, Probably the most dangerous situation, though, you can be faced with with a black bear would be in the if you're in the backcountry and you're faced with an adult male black bear. Um, uh, research has shown that's the most dangerous encounter you can be in. That tends to be more of a predatory type encounter and is more likely to result in a fatal attack. So um, that would probably be, with black bears, that would be your most dangerous situation. So if I'm, if I'm, go finish your thoughts, sorry. I was just going to say, so keep in mind, though, there are many things that you can do to reduce your risk of those more dangerous encounters. So um, 
on our website, we have a lot of really good information for people to take into uh, account when they're heading out into bear country. So things like try and travel in a group of people. Uh, a group of people is more visually intimidating to wildlife, but you're also more likely to be making noise and talking loudly. And when Wildlife is given that opportunity, opportunity to be aware of your presence. They're going to try and avoid you. They don't want to encounter us any more than we want to encounter them. So uh, traveling groups, make noise. Keep your dog on a leash. That's really important. They have been linked to situations where they can startle a bear and get it agitated and lead it back to their owner. And bears can be known to transfer that aggression from the dog to the, uh, to the person. So really important to keep dogs on leash. Carry a bear deterrent spray. Keep it really handy and, and know how to use it properly. Um, yeah. Uh, also carry um, noisemakers. Make lots of noise when you're traveling through bear country. So talk loudly. Uh, carry a whistle, a rattle. Um, clap your hands. Anything like that to make noise and, and make them aware of your presence. Is there, you some, is there something called bear bells, Janine? There is. Uh, we don't recommend those as a noisemaker. They aren't really um, loud enough to really be effective. So you're much better off to clap your hands. And um, what I taught my children when they were young is just every so often as we're hiking, we'd yell, hello, bear, at the top of our lungs. And, <laughs> and then they understand why they're making the noise, too. Yeah, make as much noise as possible. You mentioned a lot about the backcountry, Janine, but before we let you go, because we know bear sightings are up, is this something we need to pay more attention to in areas where we perhaps haven't encountered bears before? Are we seeing them enter territory that's that's relatively new? I have heard that from some areas of the province where they aren't seen very frequently at all, and this year they seem to be um, showing up more frequently. And... Um, because of that delayed spring, like so many bears had that opportunity to learn that um, people can be associated with bird feeders or garbage. And those are both um, usually cal calorie-laden food sources for them. And once they've made that connection between people and food, um, they're going to retain that knowledge and they're going to keep revisiting those areas. So really important to put those food sources away and not give them that opportunity. Janine, you're making me feel much more comfortable about my process and going into the woods next time. Thank you for this. We appreciate it very much. You're welcome. Janine Wilmont, she is a wildlife conflict biologist with Manitoba Conservation. Uh, so bear bells, not as good as pot, pots and pans, McNabb. Keep that in mind on your vacation, all right? Hey, my mom has taught me that. She's done a lot of hiking up in the Nahanni, and she used to drive my dad crazy. I shouldn't say a lot. She's done a lot of hiking in different parts of the country and would like to walk through the forest with a pan and a spoon yes. and just bang on it all through the whole hike and sing songs and all the rest. So I get it. you got to make some noise. Yeah, but if, if you do it wrong, it might sound like that triangle that you play come for when, dinner? when you come for dinner. <laughs> I don't know if the bears know that one or not. Did you? Well, actually, I asked our guest. <laughs> well, isn't that interesting? Because I put together a mashup this morning of uh, Rick Newfeld, who originally wrote this song, and the Bells, who, the Bells, who made it a little bit more famous later on. It is a moody Manitoba morning. We're talking about Manitoba music. John Anderson is joining us. He's on hold right now. We'll bring him on in just a minute, Loren. It's Mackling and McNabb with you on this Thursday morning. And we have to remind our listeners of the question of the day at cjob.com. And once again, Loren, I have to say, Richard and Julie have done a heck of a job of setting us up uh, for our morning show because uh, the question uh, pertains to Portage Place. Yeah, we've been talking about that throughout the morning, uh, Greg, and the idea that I just about said Brett. I had to ho I had to hit pause there. I'm sorry. We've been talking about that because we're waiting to see what's going to happen with the money that may or may not come from the different levels of government to keep this project alive. Starlight saying that they need 60 million uh, shared cost share between three levels of government to move forward with this 400 million dollar development. And if they don't get that, the project could potentially be dead in the water. And so the question of the day at cjob.com yesterday, and we're carrying it over today, was if the deal goes through, would the Starlight Redevelopment entice you to visit our downtown? Would the development of Portage Place 
entice you to visit downtown? Two answers, absolutely or probably not. Here's the sad news. 84% say mm. probably not. 15 say absolutely. You were very quick on your feet. I was not anticipating you'd be able to ask the question. I did not think that you would have that available to you. So I give you a gold star and a half for that one, Loren McNabb. Question of the day is brought to you by Mr. Furnace. Don't call them first. You'll see why. Call Mr. Furnace at 204-832-6243. We start this half hour, as mentioned. John Anderson is a rock music historian and author of more than a dozen books, including critically acclaimed biographies of Neil Young, Buffalo Springfield, Gene Clark, Randy Bachman, and the Flying Burrito Brothers. John has written for many magazines and contributed to a number of television and documentary projects over the years. He is an incredible resource and an absolute treasure in my mind. John, good morning, sir. Good morning, Greg. How are you? Doing fantastic. Always uh, great to connect with you. And uh, 150 years ago, yesterday, Manitoba was welcome to Confederation. So that's sort of the impetus for our discussion today. We've been talking about great Manitoba music acts. And you had Jeff Forche play the bells and that Rick Neufeld original. I think it was from 1971, if memory serves me. Hello. <laughs> <Yeah>, close <laughs> <Yes>. enough? <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. I actually, uh, really quick, once upon a time, had dinner with Rick Neufeld. He is a friend of, uh, actually, he's a relative of family friends of ours. That goes back a long, long way. Now, I have a question for you. It's, uh, it's like uh, musical Jeopardy here. John, I've, I've, I've pulled clips, three separate clips of iconic guitar riffs, Manitoba oh connected, and I want you to tell us which one is the best or most iconic. Okay, here we go. Look out there. New this July on Crazy. That's not it. The latest award-winning movies. <laughs> that is not it. Gee whiz, what happened there? Where did it go? There we go. one which is the most iconic well you know american woman that was the first one that you played it's been declared it's been anointed the greatest canadian single and for those of you who don't know what a single is it's a 45 rpm vinyl record <laughs> uh, it, you know of all time so that that i think is pretty impressive but taking care of business is played all over the world and it's used to still to, the, to this day in commercials. And then, of course, Neil with Cinnamon Girl. I mean, that also is iconic of Neil. And, you know, I mean, 45 years later, 50 years later, he's still playing that song in concert and wowing people. But I kind of got to give the edge to American Woman. I think that is the, the uh, of the three, the most iconic, in my humble opinion. When you look back, you know, and you mentioned 45 years later, John, the idea that, you know, some of this music, it still resonates so well today. Is there an era, we asked you about best riffs, is there an era for Manitoba musicians and bands that you think really stands out in terms of looking back? Well, when you look at the 1960s, probably from about the mid-60s on to uh, into the 70s, mid-70s even, that, uh, that period really produced a lot of great music and a lot of great musicians coming out of Winnipeg. I mean, here's, Neil Young once said that he thought Winnipeg was the rock and roll capital of Canada, as far as he was concerned, and he still regards Winnipeg as his hometown. But he left. I mean, we, we got to understand there wasn't much of a Canadian music industry at the time, and he realized if he really wanted to take a shot, he needed to be doing it from where, you know, the music scene was happening most, and that was in L.A. So he headed down there, but he never lost his Winnipeg roots. 
because on the first Buffalo Springfield album, which was his first taste of success, there in the back it says, you know, everybody lists their hometown in the band, and he lists Winnipeg on there. And, you know, he, he continues with that connection. But it is, it's kind of, you sort of follow the guess who. And, you know, with the guess who success, others, others came along with that. Uh, You've got to consider the guess who. 1969, 1970, uh, those were the big years for the band. In fact, in 1970 alone, the guess who sold more records than the entire Canadian music industry combined. Oh, I mean, wow. add up every record sold by Anne Murray and Gordon Lightfoot and Mickey and Bunny, and um, the guess who sold more of them. You know, American Woman was, was, uh, is, is iconic. It's, it's gone beyond the charts to become an icon of, of, you know, I mean, it's used as protest, you know, a song that protests the Vietnam War, but it's a touchstone. It's a touchstone to a time and a period. When you look back and, and we think about how that music came to be and you hear all the conversations, I've heard Dave Grohl talk about Seattle and how the grunge scene was born of the fact that it rains 200 days a year in Seattle and so all you have to do is play your guitar. Well, that sounds awfully familiar to uh, those of us in Winnipeg, doesn't it, John? Well, yeah, everybody formed it. We didn't form garage bands because it was, you know, as you say, too cold half the time. But so you formed basement bands. And, and you know, that's kind of how everybody in Winnipeg got their start, playing in a basement. And then you went from your basement and played your neighborhood community club. And if you, community clubs are really a key factor in, in the evolution of, uh, of Winnipeg and Manitoba, I guess, but certainly Winnipeg music. Because, uh, I mean, that was music at a grassroots level. I mean, at, at 12 years old, I was seeing, you know, Burton Cummings and the Devrons and Fred Turner in the Pink Plum at Crescentwood Community Club, probably standing beside your dad, Greg. No, most <laughs> certainly, John. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and it, Fred Turner from, from, you know, BTO said the first you know, gig he played was at Orioles Community Club, and it was like four guys and a drummer, and they all plugged into one little lamp, and it was such a racket on stage that they had to kick each other in the ankle to let them know when to change chords. <laughs> and he got paid a, a Coca-Cola and a chocolate bar at the end of the night, and they were thrilled to bits. Do we, you know, as we want to look back here today, John, but also looking forward because there's so many great and current bands in our city right now that are, are making a name for themselves. Does that community scene, and I know it's challenging in COVID times, it's not happening as it normally would. Does that community scene and people going to different smaller venues still exist? Or have we really, is it really shifted onto something else in this more digital online world? Have we lost a bit of that, you know, running down, up the street to see a band with 50 of our closest friends? You know, that's, that, I love that, I, that, that image of running up the street to go see a band at your community club because that was so true yeah we have lost that that sense of innocence about it and people always say oh let's bring back the community club dances well times have changed and you know teenagers have changed as well uh it is i mean nowadays for a band it's a struggle but you had it in winnipeg in the 60s and 70s and and, and onward and i know because i i was a part of that scene playing in bands you know you made a half-decent living. I mean, I put myself through university playing in bands every night. So, I mean, you could do that, but nowadays, you know, you can't. It's, uh, it's funny to realize that I remember the you know, first pubs that I played in 1971, and, you know, we got, each guy got $125 for playing the week. And it hasn't changed much since then. But there are, much, there are fewer venues nowadays for live music. And, um, you know, so you, you, you go online and you hope that people will download and people will, you know, connect with your music that way and maybe you'll play some gigs somewhere. There are still a lot of small venues uh, around town that have live music, and that's a good thing. But certainly the community clubs were the hub, the high school dances, the sock hops, church basement dances, uh, all of the Neil, Neil Young debuted his singing voice at a church basement dance at St. Ignatius Church at uh, Stafford and Corden, and he was told to stick, stick to instrumentals and stop singing. Um, <laughs> it, it's just the whole idea that it has really changed, and the golden, the golden days aren't there. The golden days are gone. Yeah, and it, and it's changed uh, all over the world. It's not exclusive to Winnipeg, mm, and so yeah. when you look at the good old days, to put it in quotation marks, uh, uh, you know, you mentioned my dad, and he turned me on to uh, Laurel Laurel Canyon, Echo in the Canyon, mm. uh, that documentary on Netflix, and I, I love reliving uh, how that music was made and through the eyes of Jacob Dylan in that particular instance. In that documentary, is fascinating because of who his dad is, and and to realize that he grew up in the midst of all that but that there was a scene like that if people want to go and see echo in the canyon that was sort of how it happened here in winnipeg right that collaboration that that music community it was uh, genuinely uh, guys would play in each other's bands uh, depending 
on the day of the week. Yeah, and, and that the word community is key to it all because it was very much a musical community. Yes, of course, there was competition, uh, you know, for, for some of the bigger gigs. I mean, playing River Heights Community Club was the, was the big community club. If you gigged there, that meant you had arrived. But uh, besides the competition, though, there was a real sense of community and a community spirit and band supporting each other. And, and you're right. You know, you'd start off in, in, a, in your basement with guys you went to high school with, and some of the guys kind of fell by the wayside, jobs, school girlfriends and he moved on to another band maybe a little further away from your neighborhood and you know that sort of thing and you know Burton Cummings first band the Devereaux was kind of like that guys from St. John's High School all playing together but you know as you start playing more and guys drift away they brought in a drummer from you know Norwood St. Boniface and another guitar player from uh, Silver Heights and you know it just kind of evolved that way to being a city band as opposed to a community band but there was always that community spirit and, and you go to uh, the paddle wheel restaurant at the bay on a saturday you know, saturday morning or afternoon and you'd see all the bands hanging out there because they were celebrities and you know, you could you used to call it you know, order a coke and nickel nurse it all day uh you know play the chips and and, and see oh wow there's you know, Derek blake from the devrons there's glenn mccray from the crescendos you know kind of we're all starry-eyed because they were to us big stars John, we put you on the spot with your favorite riff. Before we let you go, dare we ask you what your favorite homegrown talent, your favorite Manitoba band has been over the years? Well, <laughs> I kind of got to lean towards the guess who, of course. Having, I mean, like Greg said, you know, his 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 dad Ross. I mean, we all went to the music club dances. We saw them from Chad Allen and the reflections to Chad Allen and the expressions to the guess who and all the different lineup changes. We grew up. You know, if you're of a certain age, we grew up with the guess who. But, but you know, I am still partial to Neil Young. I, th- I think, you know, even though Neil Young left Winnipeg, he got his career start here, and he's never uh, shied away from acknowledging that. You know, the first gig he ever played was in you know, January of 1961 at Earl Grey Community Club. The first record he ever made was at CKRC on in, in July 23rd, 1963. Uh, a lot of firsts are here for him, and he certainly recognizes that. Well, my dad was a victim of one of those personnel changes once upon a time. <laughs> <laughs> that is the Haymarket riot. That's right. He missed out on his uh, big opportunity to open for Led Zeppelin at Manosphere. We'll have to talk about that again one time as the 50th anniversary of that concert is coming up in just a few weeks time. John, thanks for this. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Appreciate it very much. John Anderson, he is an absolute treasure. He's a rock music historian, a homegrown uh, talent, author of more than a dozen books about music, including books about Neil Young, Buffalo Springfield, Randy Bachman, and the Flying Burrito Brothers. We'll take a pause as we uh, leave you for just a few moments with a little bit of Neil Young. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG. That's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.